You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Women's Health Interrupted. I'm Sarah Williscraft. And I'm Chevy Mehra. Today, we're going to be discussing 2S LGBTQ youth and access to housing in Canada with our guest, Dr. Alex Abramovich. Dr. Abramovich is an independent scientist with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at CAMH and an assistant professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He is also a Canada Research Chair in 2S LGBTQ youth, homelessness, and mental health. Dr. Abramovich has been addressing 2S LGBTQ youth homelessness for almost 15 years. He is an internationally recognized leader in the area of 2SLGBTQ health and homelessness. The overarching aim of his program of research is to investigate the health and social inequities experienced by 2SLGBTQ individuals with a focus on understanding and improving the health and service needs of 2SLGBTQ youth and young adults. Thank you so much, Dr. Abramovich, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, let's get started. What does access to housing currently look like for 2S LGBTQ plus youth in Canada? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I wish that I could say that 2S LGBTQ youth in Canada um, are able to access housing easily and that the basic human right of access to housing is afforded equally to all young people in this country. But unfortunately, in 2023, 2S LGBTQ youth continue to be overrepresented among youth experiencing homelessness across the country and you know making up to 40% of the homeless youth population so that they really are you know quite disproportionately represented among young people experiencing homelessness and you know i've been doing this work for a long time you know i've been doing this work for over 15 years and i really continue to hear you know very similar narratives uh, as i did you know over 15 years ago when i think about it 2S LGBTQ youth uh, experience a variety of challenges and barriers in accessing housing and shelter services. And that is you know, largely related to identity-based discrimination, I would say, uh, focused on their gender identity and their sexual orientation. And you know, one of the biggest issues that 2S LGBTQ youth face in shelters and housing programs, you know, more broadly, are issues regarding safety. So 2S LGBTQ youth uh, often don't feel safe, especially those who navigate systems with with multiple marginalized identities, and so they are subjected to multiple forms of discrimination. When I say that, you know, I'm thinking of transphobia, homophobia, and racism, for example. And, you know, queer and trans youth uh, report that they are regularly forced to choose between unsafe situations. And that is largely due to a, uh, a lack of safe and affirming housing programs available uh, across Canada. And they often talk about having to choose the option that will allow them to be their true authentic self. So even if that actually ends up being the least safest uh, option for them. And I would say that that really emphasizes the importance of two LGBTQ inclusive and safe housing options. 
So really, you know, safety is a major concern that queer and trans folks continue to experience. And, you know, many of the systems that we do have in place in Canada that are in place to support all young people, those systems are often not constructed for or trained appropriately to meet the needs of 2SLGBTQ youth, especially Indigenous and racialized youth and trans and non-binary youth. And you touched on our next question a little bit there, but we wanted to ask you what factors impact access for housing for 2SLGBT youth specifically? So I would say that there are definitely a number of factors that impact access to housing among 2SLGBTQ youth. And some of those factors include age, uh, race and ethnicity, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, and then of course, a number of other uh, variables. So for example, there are some 2SLGBTQ uh, young people who are more likely to experience homelessness and poverty compared to others. Uh, so when I say that, I'm thinking about Indigenous, queer, and trans youth. Uh, they experience homelessness at disproportionate rates. And uh, I think that's a very important uh, point to acknowledge. Uh, you know, previous research has reported that more than half of youth experiencing homelessness across Canada identify as Indigenous, while approximately 6% of youth in Canada are Indigenous. And that's according to the Canadian census. So that really speaks volumes, um, you know, to that point. And, you know, over the years, my research has looked at uh, the different ways that 2SLGBTQ individuals are erased and made invisible in institutional settings. When I say institutional settings, I'm thinking about the shelter system, you know, housing programs, you know, the healthcare system as well. So, for example, the way that people become invisible and are erased in these types of settings is when institutional rules and policies don't consider or include 2SLGBTQ identities. So when people are not included, then, you know, they're, they end up erased actually by that system. And that results in institutional and data erasure. And, you know, there, there's often this expectation in many programs, um, not just in like in housing programs and, and shelter services, but also in research, actually, in research and government surveys, there's this expectation that every person is going to fit neatly into the gender binary. And this makes it very difficult for trans and non-binary folks to navigate services and to fit into services and programs, as well as surveys and research questionnaires, that sort of thing. I just had a follow-up question. Do you think that checkbox like gender should even be there in housing applications? I mean, yeah, that that's a really good question. I think that's something that I have thought about a lot, you know, over the years. And I think that on one hand, yes, I think it's important. Absolutely. I think that we miss a lot of opportunities to collect important data is what I'm trying to say. And so oftentimes, you know, we end up in a situation where programs and services are like, oh, well, we don't know if 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 trans and non-binary folks, you know, actually access our services, or we just don't have the data, we don't we don't have the, um, you know, it always comes to this point where it's like, oh, we don't have the data, so we really can't actually allocate any more funds to 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 these types of programs or to create new programs. So that ends up being this sort of situation where it's like we need better data. Actually, that's really what it's about: is that we do need better data to help us talk about and address homelessness among 2S LGBTQ populations. So I do think it's important that we ask these questions and that we include inclusive questions and inclusive response options. I don't think that it's enough to just say, you know, what is your gender or how do you identify your gender. I think that there should be inclusive response options. People need to see themselves reflected in the questions that are asked, in the response options that are provided. 
So as long as we're doing that, you know, I think I do think it's important to ask these questions, but I also think it's very important to think about the questions that we ask and why we're asking those questions. What are we going to do with those responses? What are we going to do with that data? And to be very clear about that so we, we don't get into a situation where people are asking all sorts of invasive questions just to fulfill their curiosity. Thank you so much for sharing your insight there. How does access to housing or a lack thereof have health implications for these communities? Yeah, I mean, I would say that homelessness, yeah, a lack of access to housing, which often results in homelessness, discrimination, social stigma, you know, this has very serious consequences on the health and well-being of 2S LGBTQ people. And, you know, that actually leads to significant mental health issues. So we often see high rates of, of mental health issues among 2S LGBTQ uh, folks, not just those who are experiencing homelessness necessarily. And when I say mental health issues, I'm specifically thinking about, you know, high rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality, um, increased alcohol and substance use, especially among trans and non-binary people. I also want to make it very clear that these high rates in mental health issues have nothing to do with the fact that a person identifies as 2SLGBTQ. It's not like, oh, you know, you're queer, you're trans, so automatically that means that you're going to have mental health issues. It actually has everything to do with our society and the societal response, stigma, discrimination, and not being able to access the services that everybody should be able to access, healthcare, employment, housing, just basic uh, services, basic human right to access a bathroom, not being chased into a bathroom every time you go try to go to a public bathroom, that kind of thing. And so poor mental health certainly is a major concern for all young people who are experiencing homelessness, but especially so for 2SLGBTQ folks who really tend to experience discrimination, stigma, and violence. And, and that actually results in significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety, and um, you know, alcohol and substance use and, and suicide compared to heterosexual and cisgender youth. And I do want to add in that, you know, poor mental health outcomes certainly has come up as a major finding in pretty much all of the studies that I have ever led over the years and the studies that I continue to lead. So sadly, it's never surprising, you know, when I see those high rates, but then you take a step back and you look at it, it's just like, oh my God, that this is very serious. These are, this is a very serious issue. And even though we know, you know, despite the high rates of mental health concerns that are so often reported by youth, youth also frequently describe unmet mental health needs. And that is due to barriers accessing healthcare. And that is also due to a lack of mental health support services um, that would be available to them across the country. And I think that's I think that is a very important distinction to make that this is not an identity issue. This is an institutional issue and and sort of an issue in society. And and so sort of following that, you know, what are some solutions to improving access to housing and what can some institutions and governments do to help this issue? Yeah, I mean, I would say that population-based housing programs. So when I say population-based housing programs, I'm thinking about housing programs that are specifically made for, you know, geared towards the needs of 2S LGBTQ individuals. And so population-based housing programs are, I would say, a critical part of the solution. Um, but we also can't rely on these types of uh, programs to meet the needs of all 2S LGBTQ youth because not everybody's going to want to access like a specialized um, population-based service. And also, realistically, we will not be able to create enough 
population-based programs to meet the needs of all 2S LGBTQ folks who are experiencing homelessness. And that is why I think that it's it's very important for organizations and housing programs to do the work to become truly safe and inclusive and affirming spaces for all youth. So, you know, it's not enough to just to say like, oh yeah, you know, I'll refer this person to the population-based program in the next city or wherever it might be. But actually, no, it's like every program needs to be inclusive and safe for all youth. The end of sentence period that that's that's it really and i think that this is also you know an ongoing process that really involves taking the time to engage and listen to queer and trans youth's perspectives to, to listen and understand what their needs are especially indigenous and two-spirit youth and and those who navigate systems with multiple intersecting identities i would say people should not have to pick and choose you know which aspects of their identity are more important to be addressed they should be included, you know, when accessing programs. People should be able to bring their full authentic selves to every program that they access. And so, for example, you know, queer and trans indigenous youth often talk about having to choose between accessing an indigenous program or a 2SLGBTQ program. But if they choose the 2SLGBTQ program, then they won't be able to connect with cultural practices or access, you know, cultural supports. And, you know, that includes um, accessing elders or spiritual and cultural guidance. It really shouldn't be like that. Like I said earlier, you know, I think that people need to be able to bring their full authentic selves and not have to pick and choose which part of their identity is going to be met, you know, at the program that they access. And I think that if we're going to appropriately respond to youth homelessness in Canada, then we have to engage in what we call a multi-layer response. And we have to develop strategies and uh, targeted responses that really reflect the unique needs of the diverse populations of, of young people who are experiencing homelessness across the country. But we also have to make sure that communities and young people are actually involved in the development of strategies and services that are in place to support them. I think that's very, very important. And I also think it's important to note that so many times when it comes to issues experienced by 2S LGBTQ populations, um, people wait until something like really tragic has happened before uh, responding. And so then the response is always like a reaction. It's always reactionary rather than actually thinking about prevention and, you know, and thinking about like, okay, so how do we actually avoid these tragedies from occurring in the first place. So I do think that there needs to be much more emphasis placed on prevention and thinking about how do we prevent these young people from becoming homeless, you know, in the first place. And sort of what resources are currently out there for 2SLGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness? So, you know, over the last let's say six years or so, Canada's first population-based uh, housing programs for 2SLGBTQ youth have started to open, you know, across the country. And so currently, I would say that there are a handful of these programs that exist across Canada, which I, you know, definitely, that's an excellent start. And that's something that we've advocated for for a very, very long time. I think that's amazing. That's so fantastic that we have that. So the population-based housing programs that do exist right now for 2SLGBTQ youth, they offer like a variety of different types of housing models. So some of those programs are, are bigger, some of them are smaller, you know, some of those programs offer longer term um, housing, while others are more sort of like an emergency response. And some of them can accommodate maybe a larger number of young people, but provide, you know, shorter term housing with more intensive supports available, while others are like a supportive housing model where you might pay a you know a proportion of your uh, of your rent per month and it's much more independent so you don't have 
access to as many supports, you know, that you might have in maybe one of those uh, like emergency programs. And um, yeah, and I think that, it, you know, a major difference between these programs that I'm describing and many of the other uh, programs that are not population-based is that all of these population-based programs have really been, you know, designed with the needs of 2S LGBTQ youth at the center of all aspects of the programs. And, um, you know, that's really what they are made to do. They are made to address the needs of 2S LGBTQ youth, and they are truly, you know, meant to be safe, affirming, and inclusive places to live. And so, yeah, so I guess when we think about the different resources that are available, that that's really the, the first sort of type of programs that, that come to mind. But of course, there are a number of different types of resources and programs across Canada that are meant to address the needs of youth experiencing homelessness. Unfortunately, there aren't really a lot of programs that are designed specifically for 2S LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. And so we certainly have a long way to go. Thank you so much, Dr. Abramovich, for sharing those resources. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we might have missed during our conversation? I mean, I think you asked some excellent questions. And I think, you know, maybe I will add one more point that I think is an important uh, point to add. And that's um, obviously the COVID pandemic has certainly had a strong impact on um, pretty much everybody across the country, right? And so particularly for those who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. And during the pandemic, I did lead a study that really focused on the impacts of the pandemic on 2S LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. And I, I do want to say that, you know, among some of the major findings was sort of like changes to living situation throughout the pandemic that really emerged as a major theme. And so we found that, for example, a number of youth who reported that they were living in a public space prior to the pandemic, there were about 12% of our sample of 95 youth uh, reported that they were living in a public space before the pandemic, okay? But then the pandemic hit, and then it was like 33% then reported that now they're living in a public space. And when I say public space, of course, you think, you know, probably parks and, and that sort of thing. But we heard stories from youth, you know, who spoke about pitching tents in cemeteries, because that was the safest option for them. And this really speaks volumes to the severity of the situation. Um, if we have young people who are talking about sleeping in a cemetery because they have no other place to go. So um, I just, I wanted to share that because I think that's really, um, you know, that you know that really speaks volumes to, the, to this issue around access to housing and how severe that is for this uh, population of young people. I think personally for me, that stat gave me goosebumps. Um, and also just listening to the fact that just so many youth out there were pitching tents in cemeteries like you were describing, like that's a really problematic situation for somebody experiencing that as an everyday thing. So thank you so much for highlighting this piece. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Abramovich, for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. If you liked the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts on to be notified when new episodes drop 
every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. We also have other exciting women's health research being shared on our women's health blog and through events like the Women's Health Seminar Series. So make sure to head over to our website at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca to learn more. Until next time, I'm Chavi Mehra. And I'm Sarah Williscraft. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 